palsy. Uno, dos. Put the two together and you've got one, two, also known as 12, episode 12 of Out Here in the Middle. And it's really funny because whenever you're trying to get a podcast together to make sure you've got one, the guest that's going to show up on time Two, figuring out the logistics of that, which Sarah and the marketing team have done an unbelievable job of. Um, sometimes things just kind of fall apart. And this week we, we thought we had somebody coming in and turns out they're not coming in. And we had planned last week for this person to be in today. We did not know that we were going to get a two for one special. And, and for us to get a two for one special, when you live out here in the middle, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Today could be a, uh, a deep fryer of a conversation and the fact that we don't know where this thing is going to lead. And, and even though I don't have a co-host with me today, I'm going to use one of the two as my co-host to help ask some questions. Without further ado, we're going to introduce you to James Willie Hill. James Willie Hill, um, also known as Wimpy, uh, also known as JW, also known as Jim, or as I formerly like to call him, Dad, uh, is going to be joining us today. And, and his, his partner in crime, known as Deborah, uh, also known as Grammy, also known as Mammy, and the way that I affectionately, learn, affectionately love to call her Grams, or my mom, will be my co-host today. So welcome, Grammy. Thank you, Jay. Oh my gosh, it's nice to hear your voice on the radio. Dad, thanks for being here. Thanks, bud, for are, having us out. Are you, are you excited to get on this thing? We're second choice. Fun. We're second choice. Just remember that. No, I called dad before the other one. We were going to do two because it's hard for people to be able to come all the way out here. It's hard to get people to the middle of nowhere. So we had to figure out what, what we were going to do. So I thought, you know what? Dad's story is so unique and unbelievable, not just because you're my dad, but at the same time, what you've gone through in your, in your life and then what you have turned into is something unbelievable. But at the same time, we needed an extra person. We needed to make sure that we had a little, we, you know, uh, a designated hitter. You know, Correct. That's it. We don't. We don't need a substitute. We need a designated hitter. So we. So we brought in the big guns. That's nice, Jay. Mom, it's because you raised me so well. I did. Praise God, <laughs> he did. Yeah. But your face isn't showing the the fact that that you were comfortable with that statement that I just made. Still isn't. I. Well, I think you're wonderful. Oh, thanks, Mom. She was paid to say that. So, to start in on the story, Dad. Um, in episode seven on out here in the middle, I gave my story and I talked about what I went through, um, to get to where I am. And, and you are such a huge part of what has made me who I am today. Um, but your story is five times mine. And the fact that you have, you have gone through so many crazy pivotal changes in your life. And so what I want to do is I want to just start at the beginning. And just let's let's just understand who makes up Jim Hill and and how do you if you were being introduced today, how would you have somebody introduce you? And don't say me. Don't say anything about me. Well, I won't. But that was a nice introduction that you gave me all the different names and stuff about, you know, what I've heard over uh, my lifetime. People have called me or, or these kind of things. I think I just you know want to be known as Jim Hill. Or maybe J.W. Hill. You know, that's where I got started, and that's pretty much it. Well, but, I mean, 
if you're talking to a group, which you do talk to people from time to time, you know, what, what's an introduction sound like? Mom, you've actually typed up his intros before. You know, how do you introduce? And his speeches. And his speeches. <laughs> <laughs> Behind every good man, there's Grammy. Um, what, what's the introduction to dad? Oh, my goodness. I, I've never, I've never met a man as diversified as your dad. Some would call him the leatherman of the industry. Leatherman? Yeah. You know, one of those pocket tools that you've got, like a screwdriver or Swiss army knife. Right. Yeah. One of those kinds of things. Hmm. So, so give us a couple, give us a couple bullet points on pops. Uh, he's probably the most positive person I've ever met. He also, I never hear him complain. Um, he's satisfied with what he has when he has it. He can't meet a stranger. Um, he feels comfortable with the lowest. I don't want to say lowest because really they're the most important. The laborers are the most important in our life, in our livelihood. So really they're the top, top of the list. But he's comfortable with them and he's comfortable. He would be comfortable meeting the president of the United States and he'd treat them all the same. That's a pretty good introduction, huh? Yeah, I paid her well. Do you agree to that? No, he doesn't pay me well. (laughs) This is kind of, it's kind of like Dr. Phil with me sitting in the middle here. Is there anything that you guys want to get on the table? I'm kidding. Please don't, please don't get into that. I'd like to take a couple quick seconds to thank some of our sponsors of the out here in the middle podcast. And one of these sponsors is walls outdoors. Uh, they have been uh, a sponsor of mine for a couple of years now, and they're based out of Fort Worth, Texas. They've been building, and I say building because it's a it's a clothing company that's been built off of the back of people that are building America. Uh, the Walls Outdoor Wears have been doing this for eight decades. So it's not their first rodeo. It's not their first day on the job. They build the grittiest. They make the grittiest, hardest, rugged work wear that anybody could ask for. They handle the needs that I have here at the farm, as well as a lot of the guys on the farm do wear the same stuff personally i like the ditch diggers ditch diggers uh, have a smooth waistband and the 11 ounce stretch cotton duck material is absolutely amazing i know that doesn't make sense to you but at the same time if you got a dad bod like me and you're trying to move around a lot you don't want that restriction around the waistband if you have an extra donut maybe an extra chimichanga these are the kind of pants for you at the same time even though it's hot outside these pants will let you breathe so I want to say thank you to Walls Outdoor Wear. If you want to go and see more along their workwear line, go to walls.com. Uh, you can order that directly to your door. They'll deliver out here in the middle of somewhere as well. So go to walls.com. Tell them Jay sent you, and we thank him so much for all the support they've given us. This podcast is sponsored by Chaffee. Chaffee is a premium alfalfa product that's grown in the shadows of the Guadalupe Mountains. Our unique climate allows us to have cool nights, warm days, and allows us to have a consistent growing season to make sure that we have the best quality forage product on the market. If you want to know more about Chaffee and what its uh, beneficial use for your farm or ranch could be, check out Chaffee.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Chaffee. Born in Spring City, Tennessee. The date? 1940. 1940 in December. So we know that. Yes. Your birth certificate says what day? 2140. Uh, Your driver's license says? 1215. um, 40. You were born when? I don't know. 
So you were born somewhere between the 15th and the 21st. Yeah, I think maybe I was born on the 15th, maybe. And by the time they got all the paperwork and everything done, maybe they did it on the 21st, but I'm not real sure. And and uh, when I got old enough to find out really when was I born, uh, I didn't have a mom and dad. Right. And so you had to, you had to figure out just kind of, you just put something on, on paper and go from there. Well, you know, we really didn't celebrate birthdays and everything back there, you know, in the, in the 40s and early 50s. You know, it's not like we are now where we celebrate everything. So paint so paint a picture of, of you were born to who? I was born to Creed and Stella Hill. And, and I uh, have an older brother that passed away when he was about a year old. And so I'm really the oldest of four boys. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, like every two years, my mom didn't miss. We had a new baby from Carol to Harold to Dean. And so I'm eight years of age, and uh, my mom and dad are taken away in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And so there's four of us not had boys. Uh, and it's not like it is now. I mean, you know, you didn't have all the uh, child care protections and all those kind of things. And, uh, and, and it gets sort of a little sketchy here because I, I don't really remember going to Nashville, but people tell us that uh, I was eight years of age and, and Carol was six and, and Harold was about four and Dean was about uh, a year old, 11 months, I think, to be exact, and that we were taken to Nashville to uh, an orphanage, you know. And But uh, I, I can remember being at the cemetery and all those kind of things with my mom and dad, but... Then the next thing I really remember, and this is back in in October, uh, uh, early in the spring, somewhere around April, myself and one of my cousins and a good friend was playing on the sawdust pile. And so now from that time on, I can pretty well tell you, you know, what I can remember. But had a six, seven months there that there's not, it was sort of a little gray. So it's, it's now 1948. Um, the world has started to rebuild from World War II. The global economy is starting to bustle. Um, but the Depression hit. When the Depression hit in the 30s, there was a lot of things that did not change until the early 50s, correct? You know, that's correct. I mean, you know, you take where we lived in the 40s. Uh, uh, before my mom and dad I, I died, uh, we had built a new home. And... In, in a new home back there in the forties, there was no electricity and there was no running water and uh, there was no air conditioning and there's no refrigerators or freezers. And it's in spring. Yeah. We live about, th- yeah, we live about three miles out of the city. We live on a, uh, on a little farm out in the country. Mm-hmm. The city's really a village. So, yeah. So what do you do? What do you do for, I mean, you don't have electricity. You don't have running water. So, I mean, how do, how do, how do you how do you live without electricity and running water? I mean, I, I love to go hunting and hiking and camping and all of those kind of things. You know, I moved Katie into a camper for four months, but at the same time, we could plug it into the into the into the uh, power source here. It was pretty easy. So, how did you keep things cold? Well, you really didn't. You know, I mean, in the fall of the year, we killed hogs and they they uh, put them in salt or pork or sugar cured those hams and then put them in a smokehouse. So the, the pork was there. And when you killed a beef, uh, they cooked it, they canned it. Okay. And then we had, you know, 
one, two acres garden. Mm-hmm. And so they would take all of the produce and vegetables and all that. And we had a cellar, you know, that would keep it cool, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 foot down. And so that's where you kept everything there or in the smokehouse. So, uh, you know, that's where you survive. Everything was cooked on a wood stove. You heated your water on a wood stove. Uh, you heated the water in a big black pot to wash your clothes and, and and they will you know you they wash your clothes on a on a rub board you know and hung them on the line. So, what where did you take a shower? You didn't shower. What is that word? In a wash tub. <laughs> interesting yeah, musk. What was that? What did you ask? How did we take a what? How did you take a bath or a shower? How did you how how did you how yeah. did you get clean? Well, it didn't matter. I mean, once a week, and that was usually on Sunday. Well, you took a bath. You know, in one of those tubs, and the tubs is not one of those bathtubs that you have. It's a round tub that you know that you put corn in or whatever. But uh, you know, you'd fill it up. You just hope that you were the first one to take a bath because there was four of us boys that was there. You didn't want to be the last one in the same water, but it would happen. (laughs) (laughs) It it would happen. (laughs) Let this be said, you millennials. We sit here and can just so mad because the hot water heater cut out and we have to take a cold shower. At least we have running water. Um, what was your what was your first what was your first farm equipment that you ran? Oh man, we did everything but mules and horses, you know. And I think probably the very first uh, I can remember uh, is cultivating. We was probably cultivating some strawberries, and that would be early, early in the spring before they started out. And, and uh, you know, you use a double shovel or a three-foot, uh, and you had a mule or a horse. And so it was G or haul, you know. Haul, let's go left. G, let's go right. And uh, I don't know, I'm probably nine, ten-year-old behind a mule or behind a horse. So your your parents died, and yes. and you guys go to the orphanage, or you've been told you went to the orphanage. And what happened after then? So, so you split? Yeah, we were. Uh, a couple of my uncles, you know, on my dad's side of the family, there were 15 kids. Remember, there was no TV in those days. Yeah. <laughs> and my t- Netflix my- and chill has a whole new connotation. <laughs> I want you to have 15, Jay. I'm done with two things, Grammy. <laughs> Continue on, Dad. Grammy, you pipe down over there. <laughs> well, I mean, my dad was the youngest boy of 15 kids in... Uh, uh, so 15 kids. Yeah. So when you when, should see the family photos, then you too. don't have to hire workers, Jay. <laughs> right. That's yeah, okay. But after my mom and dad were killed, you know, and, and, uh, I can remember two of the uncles, you know, the uncle that I live with, Frizz, and the uncle that Harold and Carol lived with, Charlie. And Charlie was the oldest of the 15th and Frizz was sort of there in the middle, maybe on a little higher part. And so Frizz had four children. There was two boys and there was two girls, and I fit right in the middle. And they brought myself and the baby, Dean, and Dean was like 11 months, you know, a year old. And so we came to live with them, and then Harold and Carol went with another uncle, and they lived, uh, oh, about four or five miles from us, a little community called Roddy. And so that's how we grew up. Beautiful name. Yeah. Tennessee. Tennessee. Love it. So... So what did your uncle do for an occupation? Yeah, he was uh, sort of a builder. He worked at the funeral home and, and, and did a lot of painting and stuff like this. But we had a 40-acre farm. And so, I mean, I know today when I say 40 acres, 
you're thinking, well, I can't turn my equipment around in it. Okay, mules and horses had no problem. And so it was really a tobacco farm. and We grew tobacco. And, and what happened is in, in, in those days, tobacco was uh, controlled by allotments. I mean, you had a one acre or two acres or five acres or 10 acres or whatever, and that's all of the tobacco that you could grow. I think it's still, I, I really want to say that, that there is an allotment to today that you can only grow so much. I think that's probably true, too. But, I mean, they really had control over it. It's not like the hemp and stuff that they're trying to grow now where everybody flooded the market and nobody made any money. The tobacco was really our cash crop. Now, we had cattle and we grew corn and we, we cut hay and and, and, and those strawberries. Kind of things. Yeah, strawberries. we had strawberries. Yeah, I was not a good strawberry picker, though. Why? I didn't like scooting along on the ground trying to pick up those berries. So I learned real quick <laughs> that if you could, you know, handle a team of mules or horses, that you, you know, you'd get to, uh, you wouldn't have to pick strawberries. You could work. And, uh, and I had to tell this little story. It's sort of like you. Wait, what? Well, I mean, you learn real quick that if you could drive a tractor, you got off of the hole. You didn't have to clean ditches and you didn't have to hoe crops. And so mm-hmm. by the time you're eight, eight and a half, nine year old, you're using both feet to mash the clutch on a 4020 so you don't have to use a hoe. Mm-hmm. That was sort of me. I was just driving the mules instead of picking berries. So when you, when you got your, when, when that farm got their first tractor, what was that? Uh, they traded six heifer calves, to the best of my remember, for a steel tire John Deere that you started off of the flywheel. Yeah, neat. I didn't get to drive it. Oh. Yeah, no. We didn't get to move from the horses. And then, but uh, as the time went along, that we traded it or they brought in another, brought in a farm all, an M. I think it might have even been a super M. You know, so we were really, really in high cotton now. I mean that's running some oh. that's running some equipment now. Yeah, but you know all the equipment had been adapted from the horse and drawn uh, days to now where we could attach it to the tractor. So I mean you didn't you know you didn't have any fold up equipment or right you, you know no hydraulics or anything like that. No, yeah, and it did have a flywheel on it where you could run the belt so you could run a a grinder. You know I see you mixing chaffe. Uh, we didn't have elevators. But you still were a really, really poor family. Even with the, you didn't. How many pairs of shoes did you say you had? Well, you had one that you wore to school, and then you went barefooted when you didn't. When you got home, you know there was no money. But it wasn't just us. There was no money in that whole region. Right. You know, I mean, there was just no money. Right. And but there's a lot of work. So you you're, you're growing up at your uncle and aunt's house, and you. What are you, what's your future look like? You know, you're behind a team of mules and what are you thinking? I've, I want to do this in my life. What, what are you thinking in those days? Oh, I think my, the big thing that changed in my life is probably I was 12 or 13, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, and we were in, in harvest season in the summertime and we were thrashing, you know, we didn't have combines. Right. Okay. So you had a stationary thrasher that came in and set up on farms and all the little 40 acres or 50 acres or 20 acres, whatever farms that were around there, would come to the Thrasher. And so we were at the Talents place. You, you hear me talk a lot about Jim Talent. You know, what a great guy. Very talented. Oh. <laughs> 
I'm here to laugh at Jay's jokes. Thanks, Krams. Uh, Jim was very talented. I mean, he was he was an amazing man. And so we were at their farm, and you always loved going to the talents because his mom and the ladies there were the best cooks of all. I mean, they boy, they fed well. And so we're coming to lunch, and we're, we have a mule, have a young mule that's hooked with one of their older horses, and we're going down a, a little rough, and we get to the sort of the bottom. You have a little washout at the bottom, you know, and you have huge frames on these wagons. And so, boom, we hit the bottom, and the dang frame frame didn't break, but the side that we were sitting on, and you know, I'm about 12 years of age, boom, I fall through. The wheel runs over my ankle. And now they got to take me to the doctor, and so it's steel wheel. Uh, yes, steel wheel. Yes, wagon loaded with people and stuff. Uh, and yes, runs over your ankle, crushes the my heel, just the heel part of my of my foot there. And so they take me to the doctor, and you know, there's only one doctor in the whole part of the world, and that's Doctor Lindsay. And Doctor Max said, uh, "Man, Helen, you know, and that's my aunt." And uh, and he says, this boy's probably not ever going to walk good, and he's going to have a limp and all those kind of things. And, you know, I'm a 12-year-old kid sitting there, and they put this cast on my leg, and golly, I've got it on, I don't know, for six or eight months, forever and ever, and you can smell it, mm-hmm. you know. And then finally they they <laughs> finally they cut it off, and uh, you really don't have much of a leg. You know, I mean, it's pretty skinny and yellow and – Oh, man. And so I could always remember what he said. This boy's going to have a limp, and this boy's not going to be able to play. And he, I mean, you know, he won't run like the other kids. And I thought, that's not me. And so from our house to the barn where, where I grew up, oh, I don't know, it was probably, you know, you've been there a lot of times. Uh, 400 yards? Yeah, four or 500 yards from the house to the barn. And so every day, any time I had any breaks or anything that I could do, I would run. And not very good. Had a little hop and skip and it, you know, but I would run from the house to the barn, the barn to the house. All just every time I had a chance, I'm running. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, he was wrong. I can run. <laughs> <laughs> so what is what is what does your smashed ankle have to do with what you're or your smashed heel have to do with where you're headed in life and what you're thinking? Well, I'm thinking, I heard this guy say, this, you know, this boy's not, he's going to have a limp and he's not going to do this or not going to do that. And I'm thinking, you know, as I'm getting older now, I'm 14, 15 year old and, and now I can motor, you know, I mean, I don't have a limp or any of those kind of things. And so that was just a part of my life. I thought, you know what? This thing is all about me. I mean, this thing is not about what somebody else is going to give me or make it work. Uh, and nobody had me to run to and from the barn. I did that because I wanted to be better. And so that was really a changing point in my life that I said, you know what, if you're going to do it, you got to do it. Nobody else is going to come along and hand it to you. Uh, whatever you want to do, you got to do. And so, so where does that lead you? Like, I mean, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? Football player. Well, you know, there's two or three things. Uh, in Spring City, there was a group of little houses. There were about seven or eight houses there were together, very small houses. And I used to think when I'm, I don't know, now I'm a freshman or sophomore in high school or whatever, you know, I'm thinking, wow, if I could get me a little farm, if I could get me a little place and have a hundred head of mother cows, I could have one of those little houses. I could live there and have my cattle. I'd be in tall cotton. 
I do a good job. Mm-hmm. So that's where it all sort of started. And, uh, and, and then, you know, I, I had some great people in my life. I mean, really, really, uh, I had an unbelievable football coach. Coach Long, never one time did I ever hear him use an unchristian word. And uh, he was really full of encouragement. You know, you could really do, and he could really uh, build you up. And, and you know, and he kept saying, you know, there's things you can do. You can do different things, J.W. You can do this, that, and all that. You know, don't don't ever quit. And so I really, really liked what happened. And we talked about Jim Talent. You know, Jim Talent was a running back for the Spring City Bulldogs. And Jim came to play ball. <laughs> he left He left Spring City. Let's go, let's go Spring City Bulldogs. I'll tell you. Now, Dad lives in one of them spots in Tennessee that when you're talking to people, sometimes their lips don't touch when they're And everybody saying. goes by initial. They yeah, initials. Like I'll tell you what, JW. Okay, so, so you're playing football and – you, you, you're pretty decent at what you're doing. Well, I can run pretty quick and then hit you pretty hard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where this is leading to life here. <laughs> where, what, what happens in high school? What are you, so you want You want to own a hundred head of mama cows yeah. and you want to have a little house. Well, Jim leaves, you know, and what happened was Jim and I worked in the summertime. Uh, we cut pulpwood. You don't know what pulpwood is. Yeah, we don't what, have trees where I'm from, Dad. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's what they made paper out of. And so we hauled them from the ridges where he lived all the way to the river where we put them on a barge. And so I'd drive an old case tractor, and Jim would run behind it because he was getting in shape to go to TCU. So he had a scholarship ride to go to TCU to play ball. And, and now, I mean, Jim can almost walk on water. He's just that important. Right. You know, and and, uh, and don't get me wrong. I mean, he and I had hung out and done lots of neat things together. And so he's leaving. And I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, if that boy can do it, I can too. I can do all these kind of things. So that's just, I mean, it just sort of revolved around that, you know, you could play and do different things. And I thought, you know, I would play. And, and, and started, came to a little thing called Texas Western, messed up a knee, dropped out of school, Got drafted in the Army. Ooh, change of your lifetime. Went to Fort Knox, Kentucky. Man, Lips but, don't touch there either. No. But I was older. To my Kentucky friends and Tennessee friends, I'm just joshing with you. So just <laughs> settle down, you bunch of millennials. <laughs> okay, so reverse. We go back to you went to school at Texas Western. That's correct. And you... Which is now a UTEP. Correct. The way dad has always told the story is you stepped off of a Trails West bus with $11.38 in my pocket and everything I own in a Piggly Wiggly sack. In a Piggly Wiggly sack. Yeah. And uh, so you went to school, screwed up your knee, dropped out of school, and decided that you were going to head back home. I was. Yeah. I went to work for Rainbow Bakery. Okay. And I had a cousin that worked there. And, uh, and just do great things. I got the summons to come to basic training, but I had a little time back there. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to run with a good guy by the name of Bill McJunkin. You've heard me speak of Bill quite a bit, and Bill was really into the drag racing. And so uh, Newton Chevrolet there in Chattanooga had an experimental car. I had a car that, that we could drive, and then we built a car. And so I had a chance to run, you know, a straight car for a few years and, and uh, enjoyed all that. 
So you're, you're racing cars and slinging bread, uh, and Vietnam breaks out and uncle Sam, where, where were you at when your draft number got called? I was in, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. How did you know that your draft number got called? Uh, well, they said, you know, Hey, where we need you. <laughs> they called you on the telephone and said, no. Boy, we need you. No, how did you, how did you know that your draft card had gotten punched though? <laughs> well, they send you a, a, a letter, you know, I mean, it wasn't all cell phones and all that. I mean, well, I know that's why I'm, I'm curious <laughs> yeah. about how this all worked out. Yeah. Well, they send you mail. Uh, a mail. And what US did it say? Mail. U.S. mail. It just said, Hey, you have to report down to the, Station and so you go down there and there's you know a hundred other people that's all down there and they look you all over and the doc, they give you a physical and the doctor looking up and down and said you're fine you're going boom 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 you know and so they didn't even know you had a crushed heel and a bad knee no and so so uh, a lot of the guys had volunteered they had joined so they were in for three years this wasn't something I was joining mm-hmm. you know I mean this is not you didn't want to go to Vietnam. That wasn't on my list. Yeah. That was not on my bucket The list. desert southwest, you did not enjoy either, did you? No. You did not like El Paso, Texas? No trees, hot, the sand mood. They speak a language I didn't really understand. You know, holy moly. I think a lot of but people they, would say that you speak a language yeah. that most don't understand. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Easy. Um, so, so you get drafted. You go to Fort Knox. Yeah. You're not guarding the gold. No. No, you're, you're running. You're you're in boot camp, and then what happens? Well, the big thing that happened in boot camp, you know, most of the guys were 17, 18, 19 years of age. Well, I'm about 20, you know, so I'm old. Right. And I've been to school, and so now you get to put a, a little sleeve on your arm, you know, that says you're a sergeant, but you're not a sergeant. I mean, you just you're just sort of a little platoon leader. And so, but it was nice because I didn't have to stand KP and I didn't have to pull guard duties. I didn't have any of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And so this whole deal goes through and you're in basic training and you're running and doing all these kind of things. And, and then you get orders from basic training. You're going someplace else. Well, they, I don't remember how many people was in our platoon or whatever, but I know everybody in that platoon except one person was headed to Fort Polk, Louisiana to be in the infantry on their way to Vietnam. You got it. Yeah. The jungles but, of Vietnam. Yeah. But there was I'm one, pretty sure there's not a desert in Vietnam, but I don't know that for sure. <laughs> but there was one slot that didn't. It was to be an MP. Can you imagine an MP? I had to go to training school to be an MP. <laughs> Dad became a cop. <laughs> Back-to-back weeks on Out Here in the Middle podcast where we've had police officers. This is this, not, not true. Not true. I got in and got to El Paso and then took the bus. Okay. Wait, wait. So you you don't like El Paso. No. You get drafted. You go to Fort Knox, and then all of a sudden they send you to MP school in. And White Sands Missile Range had the MP training center. Now, if we're saying MP, I think you're saying motor pool. No, military police. Oh, <laughs> never mind. So I was right the first time. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to yeah. military police school. They're going to give you a baton and a white helmet. Whatever. Okay, let's go. Anyway, they pick me up and take me to White Sands. Now, there's nothing but barracks and stuff like this. And, you know, a boy out of the country, this is not something I really was looking forward to. This is not a hundred head of mama cows in a little house in the mountains. No, 
But it happened, I was going across the street from the barracks I was going to live in over to a little PX. Okay, and that's where you go buy whatever. Groceries and stuff. Yeah, yeah. those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a guy there in this intersection of this little base that his truck wouldn't start. Mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't start. And so I said to him, I get a southern accent, so, <laughs> can I help you? You know, and he said, you know anything about vehicles? And I said, I can make that truck start. And so it's one of those old trucks where the points had closed up. You know, you put it in gear, rock it. You've done that oh, before. Yeah. yeah. And set the points a little bit. And I said, try it. Start it up. So he said, what do you do? And I said, I can do anything. I can play any sport you want me to play. <laughs> I can drive a race car. I can do anything you want. He said, well, what are you doing in the Army? And I said, oh, not anything yet, but I'm sent here to start MP training school on Monday. Is that what you want to do? No, sir, but that's what I'm going to do, I guess. He said, be in my office first thing in the morning. I'll get you new orders. So I did. I'm so who, down. who was that guy? Sergeant Major Wilcox. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't forget those names. <laughs> <laughs> and so the next morning, he gives me orders. I'm going to wreck service. Wreck service. Yeah. That's Since where he you likes to play games. <laughs> Man, that's where now I'm on the softball team. Now I learned to play tennis. I can do all that. I can, the road rallies. And so I work in the hobby shops for two years. So you spray the antifungal spray in bowling shoes. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. grease the lanes and no, mow no. grass at the golf course. Oh, you, hold on. What are hobby shops? Explain okay. to everybody what a hobby shop is. Well, you have, you have the automotive shop, okay, where the soldiers can come in and fix their own cars, and you're there to help them, okay? Oh. Okay, and then you have the arts and crafts where you can come in and paint and draw and make pots and do those things. Then you have the child care center where you have kids, and you have the youth center, and then you have the gyms. And you have the golf course. And then you have the recreation area where you can check out campers and tents and all those kind of things. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a bad gig. Right. Yeah. So how long did you have to serve? Two years. What happened when you got done serving? Well, 63 through 65, then I went to and moved to San Antonio, Texas. So you're in San Antonio, Texas now. Okay. What, are you, what are you doing? You're, you're two years in the military. You're out. San Antonio. Yeah. And it's go time. It's go. So I get a phone call from a real good friend, Bob Mumo, and tells me that there's an opening at Fort Bliss in the field rec services for a civilian. So I apply and get the job. Okay. And then I finish up my degree. And so teaching and coaching at this time paid about I want to say $3,700 a year, and the government paid like $4,400, $4,500 a year. So I stayed with the government instead of teaching school. Mm -hmm. So so you are uh, you're doing rec services. How long did you do that? Well, I was there in, at Fort Bliss for a, a few years, and then they came out with a program that if you worked in law enforcement, you could retire in 20 years. I think they still have that kind of a program. And so there was an opening at a federal prison called Latuna there in our area. And so I'm thinking, hey, you know what? Hey, here I am, 30-year-old. If I work in that job, then I can retire when I'm 50-year-old and have money. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll do that. So I applied, and, and, and it was a pay raise, too. You know, it was like a GS-12 job. And so I applied and got the job. 
wrong move. So you're now working at a federal penitentiary. Man. How exciting. Wow. (laughs) What talk about a just that'll really pump up your day. Let's go work with a bunch of guys that are in jail for violent crimes. Perfect. You were farming on the side, right? Yeah, I always had a little farm. You know, I had 75 acres, so I always had that farm. Right. But uh, there's nothing fun or excitement about steel. Are you married? Are you single? Are you? No, I'm married. Okay, you're married. Steel, concrete, and hairy legged men. Not to, not to Grammy though. No, Gam was not there in the picture. Yet. Okay, so she was too young. Ah. And he had a precious boy. Yeah, I had a little boy called Andy Hill. Andy. You know. And so, so you're working in steel and concrete and hairy legged men, is the way you said it. It took about a year to realize that this is not what I want to do. So now I transfer out of there. Mm-hmm. And go to work at White Sands. And I've been there before. Now I'll go in as the recreation director at White Sands. And so I'm there until oh late seventies and uh and went through a divorce. Yeah. Santa. Yeah, that was not very good. Wheels came off. Yeah, wheels came off. And and but I have this young man. Okay. So I have this you got your twelve yeah, twelve, thirteen year old. And so uh now I've got to have now I've got to have the hours that he does. So I come out of the government, out of rec services, and go to work as a school teacher. I think I'd rather work in the federal penitentiary. But <laughs> <laughs> anyways, go ahead. Well, let me tell you. In the early '80s, it was not bad. It was really fun, and and I enjoyed teaching. You know, what what I'm, are you teaching? Yeah, I'm teaching. I'm I'm coaching the golf team, and I'm. <laughs> Of course, you're coaching the golf team, <laughs> and 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 I'm teaching shop. Okay, okay. so like AgMac, yeah, okay. all those, yeah. Oh, so it's, I mean, it's a this is a good dig, boy. You so. have you have played for how many years now? <laughs> Twenty five years. <laughs> well, I've been blessed. Oh, okay. But I've always had a farm. Okay, okay. right. Yeah. So, so you did. So, but you lost the farm in the divorce. Uh, that's not all you lose. Well, I know, but uh, no, uh, that's a heavy load. I mean, boy, if, if anybody gets anything out of this, stay married, you know, make it all work. But anyway, uh, I'm teaching school and, uh, and and I have a chance. A guy comes in and talks in my class. Okay, And so he tells all these students about how good it is to go to vocational training. And so I'm listening to him and I said, hey. All the things you said, are they true? And he said, sure. He said, I'll fly you to Phoenix. Go look at the school. It's a vocational school. And I'll plug them. Okay, it's a great school. A little vocational school that trained in automotive and diesel and refrigeration called UTI. And so I went over, looked everything over. Golly, it was really a, a neat, neat deal. And so I come back and I called Ernie and I said, Ernie, do you make any money in this? And he said, wow, yeah, I make close to, I made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm teaching school for like 35000 I'm thinking, well, this is a no-brainer. If Ernie can do that job, I'm sure I can do that job. So I applied, and uh, and Bob Mickey, you know, who you really liked to hang out with there, came in and interviewed me and told me all the bad things. You know, if you don't work, we fire you. If you're high pressure, we fire you, do all this. Well, anyway, I went to work in 1982, 83, 82. 1983. Now, I, now you're married to, to G. Rammy. Well, let me bring that story up, okay? I'm still teaching school, but now I've got this job. I'm going to go to work for UTI. And so I stopped to have a, 
a cold drink. You know, I just came back from Phoenix. And so I stopped at one of our favorite places, and uh, one of the teachers happened to be there. And so I looked over to see, and there was three young ladies sitting there at that table. One of them was a little dark-headed, blue-eyed, cuter than a speckled pup. Man, she was cute. And so cuter than a speckled pup. Yeah. I mean that talk yeah. about Cupid shooting love arrows. <laughs> man. And so uh, I didn't I didn't ask her anything or anything like this, but then how what happened was on Monday I bounced by Susan's classroom. I said, Sue, who was the dark headed blue eyed girl that was with you? That's my cousin. And I said, Holy moly, give me her name and number. I want to call that girl. No, no, she, you know. Uh, you're not the Marion type, Jim Hill. And so I asked her, I said, Suze, don't play God. Just give me that girl's name and number. You know, let her make the decision who she wants to hang out with. I'm going to start using that line. <laughs> don't play God. Okay, go ahead. And so so the next thing happened is I called her, you know, and she says, well, I don't have men come by my house or anything like that. You know, she says, you know, I'll go to dinner. And so I really set her up, you know, I mean, there was a certain place that we'd go have a drink, a whole group of my outlaw buddies. And, and so I walk in, I tell him, I said, you know, this little fox is going to come running in here tonight and she's going to be looking just for me and uh, I'm out of here. And so they give me a hard time and boy, she come in, their chins hit the table. I get stepped up, grabbed her by the hand and left. And the rest <laughs> is history. Grammy. <laughs> what in the world were you thinking? I don't know. No, my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> Grammy, Grammy has three kids, recently divorced, going through a hard patch in life, going through yeah. nursing school, trying to put food on the table for those three kids. And you take a leap of faith with an outlaw ag teacher from Gaston High School. He just was such a... You must have been really in a high point in your life. <laughs> no, he just was so easy to talk to. So easy to talk to. <laughs> okay. I mean. Okay. So anyways, let's, let's, the getting's good. So wham, bam, you're married. And well, you're, you know, Jay, there's a little catch to it. You know, before bam, bam, you're married and all those kind of things. Uh, I think the third date we had, you know, I took her down one of the drains ditch. Matter of fact, you've been in those ditches. Yeah, that's where I proposed to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I took her on a frog gigging. <laughs> oh, you even have sound effects. <laughs> I took her frog gigging, you know, and so I'm thinking, wow, this girl is for real. You can take the boy out of Tennessee, but you can't take Tennessee out of the boy. <laughs> Honey, you're Peter, you're a speckled pup. I'm going to take you on a canoe into a drainage ditch. We're going to go gig us some frogs. I bet you're going to fall in love with me. Never oh. been taken to a drainage ditch before. <laughs> I mean, if you want to know romance, this is romance. That is. Because you had to row the boat. <laughs> yeah, I shined the spotlight for those frogs. Okay, so you guys are gigging frogs. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. And that's it. And then it just. That's it. It's marriage. Well, what happened was. That sold it. What happened. <laughs> wow, your standards are high, Mom. <laughs> what What happened is, Jay, I mean, in, in the early 80s, this thing was tough. And so early 83, I'm out of school. I've got this little salary that I got at school, but I got three months. And now I know I'm going to go to work for UTI come 1st of September. 
So I am now laying brick, pouring concrete, and schools. So I mean, I'm I'm working out of. Are y'all married then? No, no, no. So you're broke. Uh, no yeah, money. Dad's and mom, and you're I'm broke. broke. <laughs> We're broke. Okay, so and so we join forces, broke, <laughs> <laughs> so, and lots of kids. Well, yeah. how? Okay, so we got we got four kids in the mix. You're both broke. Well, well, she'd finished her nursing school, and uh, and I've conned her into going with me. We're moving a load of scaffolding, okay, from Hobbs to Las Vegas, not Nevada, right? New Mexico. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so she's got a flashlight, and, and we're driving this truck, hauling all this scaffolding up there, and she's studying. For know, my board. For a board. And so we're going by Gloriette and all those kind of things. And I'm thinking, you know, this is a pretty neat girl. And so I told her, I said, you know, why don't you just move in with me, and I'll take care of everything, you know. And she says, no. Ooh. And she said, are you asking me to marry you? And I'm thinking, holy moly, no. <laughs> so we drive on a few more hours or a few more miles or whatever happens. And I'm thinking, you know, this is miles and hours are now blurring together as you were yeah. thinking about the impending marriage that oh, could be happening. Man. And so now I'm thinking, well, maybe she wouldn't even marry me if I asked her, you know? So, I mean, this is a little touchy. We're going here now. Ooh, Grammy. You know? And so I'm asking, her, I said, well, do you think you're going to remarry? And she said, yes, I know I'll remarry. So I'm thinking, well, what if I'm in the picture or not, you know? And so I said, you know, what do you think? What do you think about if we get married? And she said, are you asking me to marry you? And I said, yeah, I'm asking you to marry me. And We've known one. each other three months. <laughs> three months. Perfect. Yeah, there's no reason to have a long time deal. You don't have to be lonely. You just have to be broke and all scaffolding. And you yeah. can find love. Yeah, That's right. And frogs. So I moved her out of her little house in Cruces to the farm. And the rest is history. La Mesa, New Mexico. La Mesa, New Mexico. You went on to work for Universal Technical Institute for 23 years. I did. You were one of the top performers in Universal Technical Institute, and it is now a gigantic company. It was a great, it is a great company. And everything they told me was true. Right. And everything that, and this is where I want to get to in the story, because everything that you've described thus far in your life has been something that would be considered blue collar or uh, light duty or, I mean, yeah, you, you had to, to grind to make things. You've had a little farm here and a little farm there. Uh, when I come into the picture, you know, we've got our little 10 acres. You guys had just built a new house, but we ran out of money. So we didn't finish the house. Right. Everything inside was plywood. <laughs> um, everything, <laughs> everything was... Yep. It's plywood. Um, They put floor heaters in, but we weren't allowed to turn them on. And so the big thing was to make sure that they were distracted in the wintertime, because when you would get out and listen to me complaining about the wintertime in southern New Mexico, you grew up without running water. So you just bite your tongue pops. (laughs) But I just remember you guys would be doing something and we would all huddle around those space heaters. It was just like the most glorious thing in the world, but they hadn't been turned on in so long. And so it was like that burnt hair and dirt smell. And then they would smell it and they're like, who's got their heater on? <laughs> we did have a wood burning stove. We did. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we did. did. And that's how we heated the house. But at the same time, so we, I, I did get to, to grow up understanding, yeah. you know, <laughs> we didn't have any money. Mom drove a big old fuchsia and, and a poo colored brown van. That was awesome. But you got potty trained in that van. I know. Dad, 
you had to become a businessman. I did. And you're in your late 40s. Yeah, mid 40s. Mid 40s. Yeah, 44. 44 years old, and you have got to change now where you're not just in the vocational industry, but you actually have to start thinking in a corporate mindset. Coat and tie. What did that do? I mean, how did how how was the transition? Was it instant success with with UTI, or was it was it? How did you learn to become the businessman that you are today? Oh, I think the big thing it helped so much. I had an unbelievable teacher. I'm telling you right now. I mean, Bob Mickey was amazing what he could do, and and I'll tell you a little story about uh, we get trained, and when I get back from training in Phoenix, I set all the kids, all four kids, down and your mom. And we're going through the UTI presentation. I mean, I've given it, given it, given it, given it just to my kids. So I had what they wanted me to say, but I put it to my personality. Mm-hmm. And so I went to work and, and I worked a few schools and had a few leads. And Bob Mickey comes in to visit with me. And so we have three appointments set up that night. The first two appointments we went on was real good. I mean, they were they were really, really, we signed them. We got their money. And man, I'm really pumped up. And so the third appointment was way down in, uh, in, in, in Sunland Park. And this young man and, and his mom was handicapped and he had a handicapped sister. And so they lived in a mobile home. There's nothing wrong with living in a mobile home, but they did. And it was not very nice. And anyway, I'm thinking now, and now I've got my thinking cap on, you know, I've signed two of the three. I've made a good living tonight. And this kid doesn't have $150 in the whole county, so there's no reason to spend a lot of time. And so I'm sort of going through it, and about halfway through it, Bob Mickey really takes over and begins to explain the program and all that. And so his mom didn't speak English, and his sister was sort of translating, and 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 and, uh, and he was translating also. And so we get to ho- through the whole deal and tell him about what the school's all about and all that, and he's going to need $150 to uh, to go to school, to enrollment fee, and all those things. And his mom began to cry. And now, you know, a soft spot in my heart thinks, golly, what's happening here? I know she didn't have $150, so now I'm really hurt. So she gets up and walks back to the back, into the bathroom, and comes out with a, a medicine bottle, you know, mm-hmm. and takes the top off the medicine bottle and pulls $150 out of that medicine bottle and says, my son's going to go to school. And to make the story really good, he did. He went to school. He graduated. And we was able to get him a job at the school while he was going to school to pay his help pay his living. And he graduated and went to work for the Ford dealership in El Paso, Texas. An unbelievable deal. But what happened was that was the best education I've ever got. And the second time I've ever heard or used, don't play God. Bob Mickey said to me that night as we're driving home, he says, whatever you do, don't make their decision. Give them the information about what we do and how we do it and let them make their decision if it's right or wrong for them. Don't play God. And I never did. 23 years, I gave everybody the same opportunity to be able to come to school and change their lives. So you retire after twenty, <clears throat> after twenty three years, we're farming a couple hundred acres in those days, and we've got a ranch. We're running a couple hundred head of cows, and we're running a bunch of yearlings. And you retire and decide that you are well on the ranch sales, kind of about the same time. Yeah, and you decide that we're going to buy a slew of Case IH dealerships. 
We did. And yeah, it's kind of crickets right now. I mean, it's one of those deals where it's just. <laughs> so we go from you being super successful, even financially, you were making good money. The, the farm was cash flowing. Uh, oh, life paid life, off. Life, yeah, farm was paid off. Everything, Everything was going good. We invest in these, not invest, buy, uh, you know, these case dealerships. And what happens? It's a tough business. Okay. And that was in uh, 2003. There was a, they were doing a little over a million dollars, about a million and a half a year. And so from 2003 to early 2008, we changed those dealerships. We now have three dealerships, as you know, and, and now we're doing a little better than $15 $15 million a year. So it really, really grew in a hurry too fast. Too fast. Yeah. And it's a tough business to be in. It is not, it's not a huge profit in it. And thank the good Lord, we were able to sell those, sell that company and come out of it. And about that time, just a little bit after that time, uh, this youngest, you know, when back in 1984, we go from four to five kids. Yeah. I mean, this is when you come in the picture. And so now you're saying, Hey dad, let's look and see what's going on. Let's go. And so from that time on, this has been, let's go. If you're, if you're looking back at, at your story going through, you were, you were able to sell the, the case dealerships and we were able to kind of pull out. That was the first case of true humble pie. Um, that I got to live through um, where we had the bull by the horns and then all of a sudden the bull's running over the top of us. I just remember the conversations because uh, I wasn't really directly involved in the case dealerships very much. But at the same time, I do remember the conversations of mom talking to creditors and mom talking to banks and you talking to banks and and making sure that we were going to pay them back. Um, and I remember the conversations of no matter what it takes, we are going to pay our debts and we are going to make sure that everybody is taken care of at the end of this deal. So that instilled something in me. But at the same time, if you were to go back in time and tell yourself not, not, not to not buy the dealerships or not to start UTI or whatever, as a young kid, what is the biggest advice that you would give yourself today you know, that's a great question. You know, uh, I'm going to answer that two ways, I think. Uh, first of all, what would you do or what would you not do if you had an opportunity to change and make a different decision? Um, uh, when we sold the ranch, I didn't have the ranch up for sale. Right. A, a man out of California came in and asked us if we would sell the ranch. And I said, no, it's not for sale. And then a few days after Christmas, he came in and said, will you sell the ranch? And so we put a price on it that nobody's going to buy it. And boom, wrong. So they wrote a check. So we took that money and we had enough money to buy the dealerships and do all that. If I could back up and do it all over again, I would have kept the ranch and not bought the dealership. See, but at the same time, and this is kind of the the picture that I want to paint is I knew that's where you were going to head with this, that you wouldn't have sold that ranch, but that ranch has now been annexed into a national monument and is a wilderness study preserve. Correct. And and so we would have lost the ranch regardless. Mm -hmm. Um, So many people live in a world where they want to go back in time and change something that's happened. 
you know, well, if I wouldn't have gotten a divorce or if I wouldn't have gone bankrupt or whatever, if you look at the way that our story as a family has been written, it's because of those hard times. It's written Absolutely. the way we are today. Absolutely. Correct. You know, mom, you don't get enough credit for the fact that you've been an intricate part to everything that, that we've had to do as a family unit and that you've been the glue that's kept us all together because dad and I will run harder and faster and stronger than anybody else. At the same time, um, you throw caution into the middle of it and let us, you know, we got, we got a fact check. Not that you're not a dreamer either. I mean, your recent idea is definitely a dreaming idea. <laughs> Dear goodness, golly. You haven't heard it all yet. Though, oh, sorry. <clears throat> but at the, so with, with the way the world has changed from growing up in Tennessee, growing up in Spring City, Tennessee, it seems like we're living in utter chaos. I mean, 2020 has just been <clears throat> a kick in in the growing for all of us. And with that, <clears throat> sorry, wake up with phlegm. Um, did you ever imagine the world being what it is today, the way it is? No, not really. You know, I mean, as I look back in the past and stuff like this, getting started and all those, there was no money, but there was really no unrest either. I mean, the country was pretty well together and uh, families were families and friends were friends and people helped each other. And and we've tried to tie that in and take it on through generations and generations for us. But, but now it's really scary to see all the unrest. Are you, are you more worried about where we are as a nation today than you were when you got drafted? Oh, very much so. And and I say that is because um, I don't see anybody stepping up to say, you know, this is wrong. You hear a little bit of peep, peep, peep about, you know, this is wrong or this is not right. But you're hearing all the noise from the people that's causing all the unrest. Mm -hmm. And what happens is uh, th these people don't have a clue. And, and I'm not putting anybody down or anything like that, but they don't have a clue that if this thing goes bad, Walmart's not going to have food. Walmart makes no food. Walmart grows no food. Mm -hmm. And so in this country, we have never had to worry about, we've had plenty to eat, plenty to, you know, and plenty of activities to go visit and see. And, and I can see this now. Uh, we don't have those activities to go and see that we've had in the past. For one, it's because of the unrest. You know, you want to go to San Francisco? Absolutely not. You want to go to Seattle? Mm -mm. Portland, Oregon? Hard pass. You got good friends. Okay. Man, oh, man. So uh, Austin, Texas. You know, we love Austin, but I'm not going to Austin now. Right. So <clears throat> if we look at the way that the world is changing and the way that things are going, um, how do we, in your opinion, instill a mindset of success in somebody that's probably going through a phase that you went through? There are so many people in agriculture that are having to restart their lives in their mid 40s. You know, not to say that I might have to do the same thing. I, I pray I never have to do that. But at the same time, what can you tell somebody that thinks that they've passed the point of life where they're building and then all of a sudden they've lost everything. What what do you do when you hit rock bottom and you're you're in your late forties? Again, in your late fifties, we go through the same early sixties, you go through the same tidal wave. How do you pull yourself back up out of the hole and how do you carry on? Well, I think it's two things that really happens. I think one is you can never get down on yourself. 
I mean, there, there's different decisions that you're going to make that's going to cause the wrong decision that you wanted. And so we take me out of the 30s into the early 40s. Okay? I mean, in the 30s, uh, we've got two incomes coming in financially. We're solid, all those kind of things. But when you just split, when you divide, let me tell you, a whole, two halves don't make a whole. Mm-hmm. So that's a big change there. Stay together. Make it work. Find out what you can do. Uh, don't ever give up on yourself. Don't ever. I mean, you know, I mean, golly. Uh, and, you know, you and I have played sports and, and we've done different things together and all those kind of things. And if you make a real bad shot in golf, you know, I don't throw a club. I don't do anything else. I, I'm going to make the next shot better. And so it's the same thing in life. If, if, if we stumble along here and we don't make it go, and, and you and I know, I mean, we've had some onion crops that we couldn't make go. The cattle market's gotten real low. You know, we've had things that didn't feed the income that we really wanted or that we'd planned on doing. But you never stop trying. But you don't put good money in a bad hole. So if this is not going to work, you got to be wise enough to figure out, hey, I can't make this thing work. Then you got to do something that you can do, you know, not something that somebody else does or something that you think somebody else does better than anybody coming and going. I, I know, and and I'm going to pick on you just a dab because I know at times you sort of looked about if you were growing the right crop and you doing the right practices because you worked with some real good growers that really knew what they were doing and how they were doing it. And I'm thankful that you took the things from them and put it into you to where you are now, not because you're a little boy, but you're now one of the best growers I know. I mean, you, you're diversified. You can roll with the different crops. You can, you can take a hailstorm and a rain down and put it in something else and keep going, and it doesn't, it doesn't change you. And I think that's the big thing that happened. When we lost something or something went down, it didn't change us. We just worked at getting it back together and change up the things that we needed to to make it more successful. And and people's argument are going to be, well, you don't understand the circumstances that I'm going through. That I, you know, this is a multi generation you know operation, and we finally, you know, we're the ones that lost it, and all of the pressure that's, you know, it doesn't matter if you're talking about a series of used car dealerships or if you're talking about a farm. Um, there's so many people that have that stress on them. What, what is the biggest way to find a cure for that stress? Well, there's, um, again, I'm going to give you two little answers as we go through this thing. I think one thing that happens as we put things together, we're not always going to make the best decision. We're going to make the best decision that we think we can make at the time, but we got to be strong enough and mature enough that if we make the wrong decision, hey, we got to live with it. We got to now change and make the right decision. And you know, the one of the big things that's really happened to to me and to you as we put things together is has been your mom, has been Deb. First Randy. of all, first of all, uh, man, Deb's belief in the good Lord and her touch with God has helped all of us all the way through. Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. And, and, uh, and her commitment to raise five kids to keep them all straight. And I can say now, I mean, I know everybody out there that's listening and doing this, everybody's proud of their family. They're proud of what they've accomplished and all that. Well, I'm proud of my wife. 
and what she accomplished with the five children that we're to have. And you talked earlier about, I have a son, and Deb had three, and then we had you. But we don't. All five of them are mine, and all five of them is Deb's. You were never raised as a blended family. It was just one solid family. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's why I think our family stood, stood the test that we've all had to go through. Um, mom, you got anything you want to add? Not really. No, I'm, I just, I just thank God praise him every single minute. I, and, uh, dad taught me that failure is not a bad thing. It's a teaching tool. And so that's been huge in my life and getting through and nobody gets to have a perfect life is what I tell you kids. Mm -hmm. We just don't get to have everything we want. And that's what bothers me. And I'm praying for, for the younger people um, in this country that we don't get to have everything that we want, but what we do get, we need to make the best of it. Absolutely. That was good. I'm going to ask you two questions, dad. Okay. Um, what's your biggest fear? You know, I really, uh, the different changes and everything in life, uh, I really don't have a fear. I, I mean, you know, I guess the biggest thing I look at is, uh, and I'll get a little, that's uh, tough here, is uh, living long enough that my grandkids know who I am. Well, you've, you've got one to go. And he's he's getting there. We're we're just we are only eighty. Come on, <laughs> give me a break. He's the youngest eighty-year-old I've ever met. Yeah, so just get off your emotional high horse here, Hill. <laughs> Pull it together. Uh, yeah. And then and then my second question to you, Dad, is this: um, excluding God and a family member, who's your biggest hero? John Wayne. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I like these movies and stuff like this. But you know, I, I think the big thing is uh, there's a lot of people that it was in my life that was very, very important. And you know, and again, Coach Bill Long really helped get me on the right track and stuff like this. I always sort of looked at Jim Talent as being a hero, uh, but I really don't have a hero. I, I, I really don't. Uh, I, I just. Uh, uh, I think I'm pretty confident in what I do and how I do it. I'm confident in the kids that we have raised. And uh, I had a, uh, a young man say one time, you know, life is all about uh, going to Sunday school and church and hitting the ball good and straight. I think that's about one who said that. Go to Sunday school and church and hit the ball and the screws. Yeah. yeah. Talking, talking about golf. Yeah. Me and dad used to play golf on Thursdays <laughs> with a bunch of old outlaws. Learned to cuss with those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Cheap <laughs> back and cuss. Cheap beer and expensive side bets. That was, that was. And I would praying that you'd lose every time, but you'd come back winning every single time. Bet on anything. You think that grasshopper's got four legs or two? I don't know. Pick him up. I'll bet you two bucks. It was ridiculous. Mom, I'm going to ask you the same questions. What's your biggest fear in life? I'm sort of like dad. Maybe it's because of the age we're getting. I'm I'm just not 
fearful. That fearful. No, I, I, I want things. I want certain things to happen. I want Hayes to get well. And, um, but I'm not, I, I'm not fearful. I do. I really do trust that the Lord is going to take care of us and there's a good plan and, but it's not easy. It's not an easy plan. Right. But I do. I don't. How about a hero? I, I'm the same with dad. There again, our age probably, I used to idolize certain people. And so when you have a hero or you idolize somebody, then you put them up too high. And they're, they're made just like we are. We're all made the same. And so I feel comfortable with whoever I meet. I, yeah. All right. Well, to conclude episode 12, I just want to say, Mom and Dad, thanks. It's been a wild ride. And uh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> and it's, no, it's I mean, it's great. I mean, it's, it's given us the opportunities to do what we did. We're doing right now. The fact that it's middle of the week and we're sitting in the middle of a podcast with uh, an awesome executive producer, mm-hmm. Daniel Mendez. Yes. I mean, you've done a great job. We're now trending in the top. Uh, 100 in the country of podcasts uh, that's thanks to you and then Richie videography yeah. and I, I can't say enough about our marketing team yeah you two guys are so talented and everything that you've done to help promote promote us to where we're at today uh, we're extremely grateful for all of you listening be sure to share this with your friends if you're enjoying what's going on with the out here in the middle podcast please recommend it put it on your social media let people know where you found this thing at and let us know what you think of what the what the podcast is doing don't forget to download and subscribe to these things at the same time have a great week and god bless 